Hey, what is going on, my friend? Welcome back to the Dear Heart and the Brain podcast. This podcast is the only podcast designed with the sole purpose to get you one step closer to achieving the life that you are destined to lead. I'm your host, Jess Wong, and I'm very thrilled to have you on today on our Thursday episode. As always, the goal of every Dear Heart and the Brain episode is to provide you the tools and strategies to help you level up in your fitness journey, your career, your school life, your business, your relationships, your future mission, and even the way that you perceive yourself. In today's Thursday episode, I am excited to announce that we have a very special guest by the name of Ms. Sarah. Sarah is a first-year medical student in Chicago and is also a Cal alum from the class of 2019. Some of her hobbies include but not limited to swimming, playing the piano, and hiking near waterfalls with her two lovely dogs named Phoebe and Cody. Today, Sarah is sailing towards her journey of becoming an accomplished medical doctor and enjoys to blog her trials and triumphs in her medical student Instagram blog at Sarah in Med. Let's welcome Sarah. Hi, everyone. Hey, Sarah. So how about you share with us with how your second semester as a first-year medical student has been going so far. Yeah, so um, second semester of our first year is definitely a little bit more amped up than our first semester. Um, we have a little bit more classes that we're taking, and we're also learning our physical exam skills. Um, so that's very fun to learn a little bit more about clinical applications of what we're learning. Um, overall, it hasn't been too bad. Yo, that's awesome to hear. Most of my listeners out there are very aware of the nature of how competitive it is to be selected to become a medical student. And that's because of the ultra low acceptance rates of the United States medical schools like your school, Sarah. Therefore, as a medical student or even as a pre-medical student, that student will really need to be on top of their peak performance game when it comes to performing their best. This not only means excelling in academics, but also uh, as a person with all the highlighted areas of life, right? This looks like maintaining healthy relationships with loved ones, dialing in fitness and nutrition, pursuing hobbies during recovery, and optimal self-care. And this brings me to the first topic that I wanted to talk to you about today, Sarah, which is about peak performance as a current medical student right and in peak performance i see that there are three different tiers of peak performance right there are the tools the skills and the mindset and the tools are at the very top of that pyramid and those are the learning strategies that one needs to employ to develop peak performance in academia right this is like active recall space repetition elaboration interleaving and dual coding so that's like a tool like if you're building a home you're gonna need the nuts and bolts to build it and these tools are at the very top of the pyramid because you can make the most out of your study session if you don't really know how to study for your class right however you can't leverage those strategies aka tools if you don't have the right systems to provide a structure So that's why the second tier of skills is all about time mastery and energy efficiency when it comes to becoming a good student, right? Like, how do you actually set up a study time that works for you? But the thing is, 
people kind of gloss over the main meat and potatoes of this and that's the mindset part that's at the bottom of the pyramid right in the mindset this is all about the headspace you have before getting started for an important event like where's your head you can't teach someone exactly how to study with those appropriate strategies that work for them and also set up a structured routine for them to constantly enter the flow state if their mind isn't there right you can give someone all these tools and skills but if you don't have the right mindset then that's not going to work too well okay the headspace is key to execute on the skills and tools that someone has and i know that this is something you could also agree with and sarah i suspect that the learning environment and expectations coming from a more competitive class at cal is really different from the past no past medical school curriculum which could be a very jarring experience okay so therefore my question for you is how have you adapted your tools aka your learning strategies from undergrad to medical school and in what ways have you strengthened your mindset when it comes to being a peak performer sure so um medical school is really unique um compared to a lot of other graduate schools i feel like compared to like let's say law school um medical school once you're in um the school has a vested interest in helping you succeed so they will provide you with a lot more tools than your undergraduate may have I will say um, the mindset part I think is what gets a lot of people, especially because um, you're surrounded by brilliant people every day, and your classmates are very passionate, very intelligent people, um, and I think that can get to a lot of people. Um, imposter syndrome is very big in medical school. We discuss that a lot amongst ourselves as well. Um, something that I always keep in mind. With medical school, which isn't something that I kept in mind in undergrad, is that everything I'm learning right now um, is for other people, and I'm learning this knowledge for myself. Yes, but I'm also learning it to help others, to educate others on their health, um, to do research that'll affect, positively impact communities. Um, so that mindset shift is pretty significant going from undergraduate to medical school, and I think it's something that's pretty unique um, to medical school. It's a lot less stressful, I would say, than undergraduate. There is stress, but it's definitely different. Um, the stress is more of how am I going to absorb all this information, as opposed to, you know, competing with your classmates for those A's and good grades, and trying to juggle all these extracurriculars and research to make sure that you're a competitive applicant. Um, that does kind of play into a factor with residency, but it's definitely not as big of a deal, I would say, at least to me,、um, compared to undergrad. And、um, I'm just trying to spend my time, you know, making meaningful connections, figuring out what study strategies really work for me, and kind of just、um, advance my professional skills.、Uh, awesome. I think your golden nugget about learning to teach or learning to serve, and in your case, learning to heal, is something that needs to be highlighted a bit more here because it goes into topics about both mindset and fighting for our why. You shared that in undergrad you were learning to achieve the best grade possible. Now in medical school you are learning so that you can apply these key principles when you're serving your patients in the future. And this sounds like a much more other-centered form of learning. And according to one of the learning and memory experts, Mr. Jim Quick, author of Limitless, one of my favorite books, learning with the intention to teach. 
is one of the most effective and efficient strategies to employ in active learning. And back to you, Sarah. It sounds like this mindset shift has been very helpful for you to approach the medical school curriculum. But I also had a follow-up question since you talked a little bit about imposter syndrome. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, imposter syndrome is an experience that a lot of folks, particularly those in academia, may experience. And it stems from limiting and distorted beliefs of ourselves that cause us to doubt and negatively question our abilities. So I was wondering for you, Sarah, what did imposter syndrome look like to you in undergrad? And what were some tools that you leveraged to tackle this beast of imposter syndrome? I uh, definitely struggle with imposter syndrome um, pretty much my whole life. Um, It's something that I've been working towards, but um, it's easier said than done. Um, Imposter syndrome is definitely something that a lot of medical students talk about. Um, It's very common for everyone, I think, to experience at least once in their life. Uh, I think I really understood the fact that I suffer from imposter syndrome. We took this survey at the beginning of the school year with our academic center, um, which helps us with tutoring and stuff like that. So we had kind of a self-assessment about our learning styles, things like that, time management, blah, blah. And um, I apparently scored myself relatively low compared to my classmates, even though you know, for example, for time management, I think I had really good time management, but I just scored myself lower compared to other people. So that kind of made me realize that I have a predisposition towards it, and so it's something that I should watch out for. I also think the culture of medicine is something that, you know, unfortunately does promote imposter syndrome. Um, you are taking care of people, and the decisions you make can affect other people's health, and so, you know, a lot of people strive for perfection sometimes when it's not really realistic. I think we do need to try our best and learn our things, but you know, people make mistakes and that's why we're in medical school, right? So now is the time to make your mistakes, you know, figure out where your weaknesses are and work on that um, with personal development. Um, I know a lot of my mentees also suffer from imposter syndrome and I've had many, many conversations about, you know, ways to deal with it. Um, I think the first one is to remember that everyone's different, everyone's path looks different. Um, and you know, not everyone wants to talk about their struggles. So when you see people succeed or or you know do really well in your mind you know you don't know what struggles they have going on behind the scenes so um, I think it's a really humbling um, perspective on life and it definitely helps with the imposter syndrome Um, I also think just having friends in school wherever you are what stage of education you're in definitely helps because I'm sure all of your friends have suffered from imposter syndrome at least once so having that camaraderie and just someone to talk to when you're feeling like this is really helpful. Um, okay, so I started scribing literally the day after I started to stop school. So I think I my last class was on Thursday and I started scribing on a Friday. So literally no break time. Um, having a full-time job, like this was my first full-time job where I had responsibilities and I needed to meet deadlines and things like that. It definitely taught me a lot. Um, I realized how much I love being a student, actually, because when you're a student, you're learning. You know, you don't really have a lot of responsibilities outside of that. Um, but when you're in a full-time job, you're being paid to do something. And um, the expectations are were pretty high for my job. Um, transition-wise, I feel that, you know, having that for someone um, as opposed to just working for yourself when you're a student is very jarring. It can be very jarring. Um, I struggled transitioning at the beginning mostly because I was struggling my full-time job with applying to medical school. So I would go to work for 
you know, eight to 10 hours, and then I would come home and then work on my applications. So that was very taxing. Um, I would say after I finished my applications and I kind of could just focus more on work, it got a lot better. I really enjoyed my gap year. I thought I learned a lot from working full time. And, you know, there is a little bit less flexibility in working full time, but also you don't have to worry about studying for exams and stuff like that. So you can really take advantage of your free time as well. Um, and, you know, now that I'm in medical school and after my gap year experience, I feel like I value my free time more. Um, I value work-life balance a little bit more, too. I understand that I need to take some time off for myself to, you know, perform the best that I can. Um, so I personally really like my gap year. The transition was, you know, challenging at first, but definitely doable. And um, I would say the transition back into school was also um, fine for me. I didn't really struggle with that much. Oh, I see. It sounds like during the beginning of your gap year experience, you weren't only managing your full-time job, applying for medical school, which is a full-time position on its own, but you were also managing your values in relationships and hobbies. These, All of these high demands, of course, require an external support system to keep you grounded and going during that time. That's why I'm curious to know who are some of the key players your life during that time that really elevated your well-being on top of all of your demands yeah so i lived at home um, i moved back home after i graduated from college to save some money on rent so my parents were kind of there with me the entire time and they provided me with like a lot of um like tangible support like they would cook for me and they would help me with my laundry and things like that which i really appreciated um especially when time is such a precious thing it allowed me to do other things that i wanted to do that day or you know not have to worry about cooking for myself and going grocery shopping um also uh, my friends were a huge support to me um both in the application process, they would read through my apps for me, provide me with edits, but also just emotionally um, applying to, you know, graduate school is very stressful, medical school especially because, you know, there's no guarantee that you're going to get it anywhere. I mean, it's very common for people not to get it anywhere when they apply, which can be very um, devastating to people. Um, so the waiting game of hearing back from schools is very taxing and having my friends to talk with and, you know, catastrophize with and they would kind of rationalize my fears was really helpful for me and lastly probably my boyfriend he's been with me this whole time um he's been through every single application that I submitted he would read every single one of them he spent hours editing my primary application um, to make sure that it was as perfect as possible even when I was getting tired of editing he was still doing it um and he was just he was just there, like all the rest of my friends and family throughout the whole throughout the whole thing. And even today, they're all still with me. Wow, that's awesome. It sounds like all of these key players were a very integral part of both your application process and your current medical school process. And I'm very happy to know that. You talked about the waiting process that you were experiencing. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that. So, yeah, the medical school application process is probably notorious for the waiting game. Um, and I don't know any other field or process that is as drawn out as the medical school application timeline. So you start um, applying in May or June. That's when the application op opens on AMCAS. Um, this is just for MD, um, allopathic schools, so MDs. Not, I'm not really speaking to DOs. I didn't apply to any DO schools, so the timeline might be a little bit different for them. Um, I applied in June. 
coming June. And then um, after your primary application, you have to wait for a secondary application, which is a school-specific application that you receive um, after a screening of your primary application. Not every school screens, but some do. And they kind of decide whether or not to extend you the secondary application. And then you do that, and then um, you wait however many months to interview. Um, my first interview, I think, was in October. Um, the first day that you can be accepted anywhere, I think, is October 15th. Um, at least it was when I applied back in 2019. It might have changed by now. Um, and then you kind of just wait. You interview. You might wait a few weeks. You might wait a few months. Um, I had six interviews. Um, I had my first acceptance, I think, in November, which was relatively early, and I was very happy because I didn't have to be anxious about not getting in anywhere. Um, and then my last interview, I think, was in February, and I didn't hear back from that school, which is the current school that I attend, until April, late April or early May. So I really didn't know where I was going until um, April or early May, and I was one of the lucky people that got accepted relatively early. There are some people that don't get accepted until, like, the day before school starts. Um, so people, yeah, people are, wait forever. Um, I was on a wait list for a school um, that... I mean, I, I, I wasn't too stressed about that because I already gotten in somewhere else. But for people that didn't get in anywhere, this wait list is the only like chance they have. And so they have to wait on this wait list with no guarantee that they're going to get off of it. So yeah, the waiting process of medical school applications are it's probably one of the hardest things to deal with, I think. Wow, wow right on, Sierra. That waiting game does sound very emotionally taxing when it comes to waiting to hear back on literally the day before school begins to know if they earn a spot. And all of this waiting game and stuff, right? It requires a lot of patience and faith in oneself to be able to find solace during these times of anxiety. And a lot of my listeners out here are entrepreneurs, right? Folks who are scaling up their business so that they can one day make a huge impact on the incredible people who they serve. And in this entrepreneurial lifestyle, enduring to work towards a novel venture often requires a lot of self-faith as well. It's challenging when results don't show up day after day, not even week after week, and sometimes not even month after month. And it's very similar to the stone cutting story, where a man is cutting a stone in half. And from day one to day 100, the man is cutting and cutting. And the people around him are saying, you know, man, it's not going to cut. Like, just stop. But that man persisted every single day. But on the 101st day, the stone had finally cut and people are like, wow, please teach me all these things, right? And they're coming back to him as if they never discouraged them from 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 cutting in day zero to 100, essentially. And people are always asking, was it the 100th cut or the 101st cut that made this stone finally get into half? And the moral of the story is that it was neither. It was the consistency and persistence each and every single day that the stonecutter put in. And I'm sure that the medical school journey is very analogous to this persistence. Therefore, my question for you is, how did you develop your faith as a pre-med and also today as a medical student? So I think there's a reason why I'm not an entrepreneur. Uh, I don't. I struggle a lot with having a lot of faith in myself. Um, at the beginning of the cycle, I was honestly convinced that I wouldn't get anywhere, and I was kind of resolved to the fact that I would have to apply again, and that was fine with me. Um, and then, lo and behold, I got um, accepted to many, many great schools, and I had a lot of good options for me. Um, yeah, that's something that I'm still struggling with. Um, as a pre-med, I think 
I grounded my faith in myself and the fact that, you know, I wanted to do this for with good intent. Um, I really do care about other people and understanding the science behind, you know, different disease processes and stuff like that. Um, I feel like a lot of people kind of describe their calling to medicine as like a calling, um, which I think is a little bit unique to our profession. And, you know, for some people, medicine is just a job. Being a physician is just an eight to five thing. But um, I kind of feel it more as a calling, uh, as as do a lot of my colleagues here. Um, and I really like cannot imagine myself doing anything else. And I hope and I think that I can be that in my application that this is what I want to do this is the only thing that I can see myself doing and these are the reasons why I'm so sure about it and my qualifications of course um as a medical student yeah I'm still struggling with that faith part um you know imposter syndrome is real I deal with it every day um but I just hold true to the fact that like I am trying my best I, you know, sit down every day and I study these things, um, trying my best to learn the material, um, trying my best to learn my physical exam skills for my future patients, and that's kind of where I place my faith in. Um, mostly in my effort, I think, as opposed to some other qualities that I have to possess. Well, right on, Sarah. Can you explain to our listeners as well as elaborate a bit about how that calling to you feels like in terms of an emotional experience that you feel inclined towards yeah so i um decided i wanted to go into medicine a little bit later than most people i feel i have a lot of friends and colleagues that have known since they're a little kid it seems like this was like the only thing that was on their mind um in college i knew that i wanted to go into a healthcare profession but i just really wasn't sure um what it was um i think the big moment that kind of made me realize that medicine is what i wanted to do um was during um, a volunteer experience that i had um with a uh there's a clinic called suitcase clinic at uc berkeley and we serve uh, homeless folks in the berkeley area and i was a volunteer for a women's clinic so we had clinics every monday and um, i was in charge of wellness so as wellness coordinator i would help paint nails organize like holiday parties you know this well before covid so we could all be in person and everything was great and um there was one woman that would always come in and we would always chit chat she'd always let me do her nails um and one day she started opening up about you know how hard it's been for her to find a job recently and i was and she was really excited because she had an interview lined up for um it was a warehouse job um, and she was going to be using her hands a lot and she was explaining that she was very worried about this because um, way back when um, someone had broken her hand and it hadn't healed correctly so she experienced a lot of chronic pain from this um, and I kind of realized that from talking with her and other clients that um, health is kind of a really big barrier for these people in stabilizing their livelihoods um, and this is just a very small population but I think can it can be applied to a lot of people. Um, and so increasing accessibility to health is something that I'm very interested in. Um, tackling the social determinants of health in the community um, as a preventative measure to keep people healthy and for them to be able to um, perform to the best of their ability and whatever they want to do in their lives is something that I'm super passionate about. So that's kind of where it started. Um, there's also some personal experiences that I've had with friends that have been in crisis um, and I've had to take them to the emergency room that kind of cemented that idea in me that, um, you know, I'm I'm decent at taking care of people in crisis and um, to be that person um, 
with someone to offer support in their vulnerable space is something that I really um, find fulfilling. And it's just thinking about being a physician is just such an honor um, to be in that position and relationship with someone. So that's kind of um, what the calling looks like for me. For short of this episode, I like to include a final five rapid fire. And the final five rapid fire is basically going to be me asking you five completely different questions from each of, of them as well as the entire conversation as well. And I expect a brief answer for that question, but you're also allowed to elaborate. So these are going to be the final five rapid fire and I'll get started now. The first one is what are the three non-negotiable actions that are in your daily routine today that make life so much better and easier? Oh gosh, okay, that's a hard one. Um, my routine is three non-negotiables that make things easier. Well, I brush my teeth. I feel like I'd be very self-conscious with bad breath. Um, I make my bed because I feel like every successful person I've talked to makes their bed um, for some reason. Um, and third, I always make sure to eat meals because sometimes when I'm really stressed, I forget to eat, and um, that's not good. Yeah, the making the bed one. Um. One of my one of my favorite um, motivational speakers' name is Rob Dial. He talks about how making the bed is basically the momentum big, the momentum builder. That's literally the smallest step that you can take once you wake up. And when you do that, you can you can basically crush and dominate the day with that confidence. So I love that you make your bed, brush your teeth, as well as ensure that your meals are going on so that your metabolism stays in check. That glucose goes to your brain, right? Twenty to thirty percent of our dietary carbs go to our brain and, and we need that to have optimal power so all right cool three non-negotiables awesome number two besides your family who else in your support system has been the biggest role model or mentor over the past five to nine years so and that, that has also helped you thrive so this is a longer time period five five to nine years that's a hard one um five to nine years Probably, wait, sorry, who can it not be? Uh, no family. No family, okay. I would say probably my friend Colette. Um, I've been friends with her since, I think, middle school. And I really look up to her as a role model because she holds very true to her values and she has a very strong moral compass. So if she thinks something's immoral or unethical, then she just puts her foot down and says it. And I think that takes a lot of courage and that's something that I really strive for in my everyday life, um, especially with medicine. like making sure that your actions are ethical and equitable um, and having to stand up to a higher power or like your superior for that to advocate for others is something that I really value. So I'd probably say my friend Colette. Wow, for sure. I, I think that's awesome. Just the accountability that comes with moral compass and also keeping yourself to a high standard so that you're, you're, you're congruent in all the actions that you carry out. So that's, that's awesome. And number three, what if, okay, if you had to create a law, that everybody on earth would have to follow, what would it be? Oh, okay. This is, I think this is easy. I would make everyone be nice to each other. I feel like there's so many issues in this world that could just be solved by people just being nice to each other and being compassionate, understanding. Um, yeah, that would make the world a lot better. For sure. Kindness. Huh? All right. Number four. What is What has been the biggest lesson that you've learned in the past 12 months? Past 12 months. That's a great question. The past 12 months, what was 12 months ago? Um, I would say very 
cliche-ish, but um, I guess I kind of mentioned this before, but, you know, everyone has their own struggles. And I guess this kind of ties in with the kindness thing too, but it's like, you know, if you're having a bad, bad day and you project that onto someone else, you know, you don't know what their day looked like and how that could affect them. So I guess the biggest lesson is just to be really mindful of how you act and what you say to other people because it can really affect them. And just to give everyone the benefit of the doubt. For sure. That takes a lot of mental strength as, and as well as um, stability in yourself to always give yourself, give others the benefit of the doubt. And I hope that you also give yourself the benefit of the doubt when you are tripping over a, a little bit of some, some, some hiccups in the road, you know? Yeah. And last question of this final five rapid fire is what is your love language and how do you express that for yourself? Oh, this is so easy. My love language is like feeding people including myself, which is why I kind of mentioned the meal thing. Um, you know, in my culture, I'm Korean. Um, we love to share meals together. Um, I love cooking for my roommate, Hannah, my friends, um, before COVID, of course. Um, my boyfriend, we cook meals for each other, and it's kind of like our love language to each other. I also show love to myself by feeding myself nutritious food and letting myself have, you know, a treat once in a while because we all need that for our souls. So that's my love language. Well, awesome stuff, Sarah. Well, folks, there you have it. Sarah in her episode, Mastering Transitions and Strengthening Mindset. If there's one key thing that you've learned in this podcast, make a quick video on your Instagram story about it. Tag me and Sarah on your Instagram at sarahinmed at, and at Bush of Jazz so that we can see it. But other than that, I'm going to leave you with the same message that I leave you in every single one of these Dear Heart and the Brain episodes. Keep that brain sharp. Keep that heart healthy and go dominate.